0: Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be looking at three whole verses this morning. I know. I mean, you're used to getting about three words. This time we're looking at three verses, four through six. We're actually doubling how far we're going to get in this letter since we began this sermon series several months ago. Sometimes as I'm preparing um, a sermon, I'll, I'll think, okay, I, I, I think I understand and grasp what, what scripture is teaching me. You know, this is how Jesus is speaking through this text, I believe. And this is consistent with what we hear, that in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. But sometimes I think, what would Google say? Right? What can we learn from from Google and so I I type in some queries every once in a while and and I came across this article titled in defense of being average by Mark Manson Um, he encourages his readers to accept that they won't be extraordinary at most things they do if anything He writes this, there are over 7.2 billion people on this planet, and really only about a thousand of those have major worldwide influence at any given time. That leaves the other 7.199,999,000 plus or minus of us to come to terms with the limited scope of our lives and the fact that the vast majority of what we do will likely not matter long after we've died. This is not a fun thing to think about or accept. Now, his point is that once you accept average, once you accept that most of your life is gonna be mediocre, right, at, at best, you're gonna be mediocre, average, you're gonna fall in that, that bell curve right in the middle somewhere on just about everything you do. And then you'll, you'll, you'll be on the, you know, the positive end in some areas, and you'll probably be on the low end in some some areas right but he's his point is that if you accept average you might actually be emotionally free to appreciate the simple and the mundane aspects of life which end up taking up most of our lives taking up most of our time on a day-to-day basis and so as far as secular advice goes it it actually is not that bad It, it could have been a lot worse but what happens when you're below average in most things or what happens if the thing that you've devoted your time and your attention to the thing that you're living for fails what then where do you turn to for hope what do you do when the thing that has defined you uh, becomes a failure hold on to that for a moment apparently there's there were some false teachers The early church promoting the worship of angels and that's incomprehensible to us probably for the most part we don't understand why why was there was a fascination with angels to that degree they were attempting to place christ on par with angels that seems to be the case Um, at least for this audience that that's a threat uh, for the hebrew audience and so this author is warning against it. It's possible that the teachers, these false teachers, held to some kind of form, maybe identical to the Qumran or the Dead Sea sect, that believed the archangel Michael would hold a higher office than the Messiah in glory. And that, that there's the, the Messiah, the king, and then when we enter into glory, that, that actually he'll be doing the bidding of the archangel Michael. That was a a view at the time. So it's possible that that's influenced or that's having a growing impact or an influence here to where the author has to warn about it. We do know as well from Colossians that Paul warns the Colossian church of false teachers who were insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Colossians 2.18. You also have examples of John. When we went through our sermon series in Revelation, you might recall, there's the examples of John actually bowing down he's tempted to to worship the angel who showed him the revelation of god's final judgment and glory the vision was was so great so glorious that he falls on his face before the angel worshiping the angel so that the angel rebukes him on both occasions you must not do that i'm a creature like you Revelation nineteen ten and Revelation twenty two, eight through nine depict that. So there does seem to be this universal temptation to worship inferior glories. And and in this case, in, in this situation, there was a specific fascination with angels. Now, we might not be tempted. I don't think any of you were tempted this morning to skip church and to stay home and, and pull out, you know, a depiction of Michael or You know some some angelic being and to bow down before it and worship it to begin worshiping angels but we do i think underestimate the value of jesus and we elevate the importance of maybe a a vague spirituality many in the church right struggle with this are you seeking to know christ and him crucified or is there some deeper some more mysterious spiritual experience that you're after. Maybe you're here this morning for that experience. For too many believers, Christianity is less about Jesus, less about learning about him, and more about increasing their own intellectual knowledge, developing their own eschatological vision, trying to piece together all of the events that are taking place in the world and figure out what the bible has to say to them for that vision or simply having their own spiritual experience and what we do is we turn worship on its head right we make it about us but when we know that jesus is superior superior to everything then we can be content even when he is all that we have. Right, when you hit rock bottom, Jesus is enough. That's the importance of understanding that he is superior, not only to the angels, but to all things. So before we read this passage, let's ask for the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder, Lord, that Christ is enough, that Christ is superior, that everything that tempts us in this life, the the things that that draw our attention away from you, the, the good things even, the gifts that you've given us that we elevate into an ultimate status, Lord, may we be convicted of those tendencies. May we confess our sin and repent and to lord once again be reminded of what christ has done for us and to apprehend the mercy that is held out to us in the gospel message that we would be comforted nourished reconciled and then sent out in that confidence with a new endeavor after obedience that out of gratitude we might live our lives for you and not ourselves it's in christ's name we ask it amen read with me hebrews chapter one we, we'll begin in verse three and we'll go down to verse six he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son." And again when he brings the firstborn into the world he says let all God's angels worship him amen this is God's holy word if you're following along in your outline like to take notes fill in your first blank here from verse four that he's superior to angels because he has a better name a better name this verse is, is highlighting the uniqueness of the Son, and, and that re, or the author here has been highlighting the unique, uniqueness of the Son. We've been talking about that from the first three verses, right? Um, but that requires some clarification here, because he knows what his audience struggles with. Since Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, according to the previous verse, isn't his status then much like the angels who are said to surround the throne of God? And so the author spends considerable time here highlighting the superiority of the Son. Verses four all the way down to 14 are all about this topic how Jesus is superior, how the Son is superior to angels. And he uses seven different Old Testament references. So he makes his point here in verse four that Jesus is superior, or the Son specifically. He doesn't, he doesn't name Jesus yet. And he says the Son is superior to the angels. And then he proves it from Scripture, from seven different quotes. So we're going to be looking at this for uh, at least the next few weeks. But in verse 4, he's highlighting this superiority. The Son has always been superior to the angels. But we, we run up against this language here. in uh, having become as much superior to angels... So how do we understand this? If the son has always been superior, we know that he participated in the creation of angels. Verse 2, he was, all things were made through him, consistent with Colossians. But he became superior to the angels in the sense all, as well in the course of redemptive history. That's what is being emphasized throughout these verses. We're, we need to be thinking in terms of the son in his redemptive work so jesus became man and was exalted in his glorified humanity as the son of god his redeeming work brought many sons to glory that's how he'll put it in the next chapter chapter 2 verse 10. so the superiority of the name of the son is a common theme for paul as well he he told the church at ephesus that christ was exalted raised and enthroned in heavenly places He goes on to say far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the ones to come. So Paul makes it very clear. There is not a single name that will be elevated above the sun. He is the name above all names. He also told the church in Philippi something similar, God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the the clarification there, in heaven and on earth. There is no heavenly creature that competes with the name. Of the Son, the name of Jesus, or even under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. They will all give him worship and praise. So names mean something. Sometimes we can place too much of an emphasis upon the importance of a name. Um, The billionaire Elon Musk and his musician, or the musician Grimes, named their son. X-Asha-12 and their daughter xa dark Sidrail. Uh, their nicknames are X and Y. Now, that's strange. There's going to be some consequences, I think, for having those names. There's no doubt that our names do have an impact upon people's perceptions of us. And a, a bad name might actually get skipped in a stack of resumes while a likable name can receive preferential treatment. Studies have been done to show that is true. So we should put some thought into the names we give our children. When Carrie and I were considering baby names for the first time, if it were up to me, Madeline Page might have been Heather Rain. Now, who knows what she could have been had we gone with that name instead. We'll, we'll never really know. But many people we meet in Scripture have names that reflect their character or calling in life. For example, Isaiah means God saves. It has to do with his calling as a prophet, his responsibility to proclaim the salvation of the Lord. Hosea's children do the opposite. And If you recall, he was told by the Lord to name his children Jezreel, which is a location of a slaughter that, that took place. Uh, Ruhamah, which means no mercy. And lo me, not my people. These children would have names that represented the judgment that was about to fall upon Israel. Here, the name of the Son of God reflects his redemptive accomplishment, as we've said. So to believe in the name of the Son of God is to place our faith in his person and work. You can read that in John three and first John three first corinthians 6 says that we are justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and so it's this redeeming aspect that brings justification this this redeeming aspect of the son's name that the author in hebrews wants us to understand wants us to know that he has a name that is superior it's a more excellent name if the son has inherited a name that is more excellent than angels Than to worship angels or to elevate any of them, even just one, Michael, to elevate any of them above the Son is to miss the point of redemptive history. Since God has established the name of the Son above all other names, then he alone is worthy to receive our praise. Jesus is better than every alternative to which we might give our lives. And this also means that rather than living to make a name for ourselves, we actually find fulfillment by making much of the name of God. When we have learned to do that, we can endure the loss of everything else. We're unable to persevere, not because we have developed such an unshakable faith, but because the object of our faith has inherited a more excellent name and it's by the power of god that we are kept united to the name of god forever according to john 17 jesus's high priestly prayer recorded in john 17 11. and so not only does the son have a better name but we see secondly in verse five that he has a better claim a better claim this verse combines two old testament references psalm 2 7 as well as second samuel 7:14, and they form a, a, a chiasm look at Um, kind of this a b b a where you have the idea of the first line in psalm 2 7 you are my son that is repeated at the in the fourth line and he shall be to me a son most of you probably have bibles that that separate these out into sort of poetic lines it's quoting the old testament there and then you see the middle lines lines two and three today i have begotten you coincide with, I will be to him a father, so this idea of the, son, the father and son relationship. So while angels were called sons of God, you, you see that throughout the Old Testament. If you were in Sunday school, you also know that that's something, right? That this, the sons of God could be a reference. Um, actually, I take that back. We didn't talk about this in Sunday school because we didn't get to Noah, <laughs> We will talk about that next week, so come next week. The angels were called sons of God. You have this in Psalm 29.1, Psalm 89.6. You have examples of this in Job. What happens, That there was a time where the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord on his throne. And and you have the example there of Satan uh, asking to bring judgment or curse upon Job and his household. So the sons of God are referenced there, but, but none of these angelic beings are called my son, as they are here. His, his relationship with the father was superior, superior to any of the heavenly creatures. This is precisely what got him into trouble with the religious authorities during his ministry. He made himself equal with God by taking to himself such an intimate, familiar relationship with God, his father. Psalm 2, 7 refers to the Lord's anointed at verse 2, which is both an immediate reference to the king of Israel, as well as a future reference to the coming Messiah. The Lord will establish his anointed on the throne and the nations will will become his heritage. That's the, the promise of Psalm 2. Those who do not fear this king, this anointed one, will be judged, but... Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So this was always interpreted as a messianic psalm. It depicts a future king in the line of David who would come in wrath as well as blessing. Paul explicitly applies this psalm to Jesus in Acts 13 verses 32 and 33. Based upon his resurrection, he says this psalm is speaking of Jesus it's referring to the point of the son's enthronement when his father openly expressed his relationship with the resurrected and ascended son and so the author of hebrews also quotes second samuel 7:14 and in that passage it's a direct reference to solomon who would build the temple god says he will punish solomon when he commits iniquity and it goes on to say but my steadfast love will not depart from him as as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you." Verse 15. So maybe you think, well, that doesn't sound like the context is, has much of an obvious parallel to Jesus. It speaks of uh, the iniquities of Solomon. But there's a reason why the author quotes and cuts off the quote where he does. He's not suggesting that every aspect of 2 Samuel 7 Foreshadows Jesus, but specifically the particular reference to the father son relationship does. and so considering the the devastating division that would follow Solomon's reign, it was apparent that a future king would establish David's house and his kingdom and his throne as is promised in second Samuel 716. And so they would have understood that this was not fulfilled, at least by the end of Solomon's reign, that he was not the one to fulfill fully, 2 Samuel 7. So, as most prophecies, this finds initial and partial fulfillment in the next Davidic king, but it would find ultimate and complete fulfillment in the Messiah. Now, this reference specifically emphasizes the one from, from Psalm 27, specifically emphasizes the anointed as the Lord's begotten son. It's referenced in Acts 1333, as I said by Paul. It's referenced here in verse 5, and then it's also referenced again in Hebrews 5:5, all with reference to Jesus. The Son is superior to the angels because he is begotten, not made. These terms have been treated as synonyms by heretics and and cults. Arius taught that the son was the first created being and that there was a time when he did not exist. And you wonder, how how did he get there? Well, to beget a child is to give birth. So you could understand how there might be some confusion. So how do we understand this reference? Today I have begotten you. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis brilliantly explains the statement in the Nicene Creed where we read that the Son of God is begotten, not made. And he distinguishes between the two ideas of what, what you beget and what you make, what God begets and makes. He says this When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies a beaver begets little beavers and a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds but when you make you make something of a different kind from yourself a bird makes a nest a beaver builds a dam a man makes a wireless set he was writing a long time ago or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set say a statue If he is a clever enough carver, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed. But of course, it's not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It's not alive. Now that is the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God. Just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God. Just as what man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they're not things of the same kind. They are more like statues or pictures of God. That's an excellent, helpful explanation that distinguishes here what is meant here by this phrase, begotten, why the Son is begotten from the Father. So those who are committed... Think again of the temptation of this original audience. Those who would have been committed to worship angels would never know the Father. Could never know the Father in that way. They worshipped creation rather than the Creator. They, they worship what God made. They rejected what Jesus declared about his own authority. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. So the son's exaltation proves the truth of his message, the truth of the gospel. His claim right there in John 14 was vindicated by the father's approval as he was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So no one should expect to enter into a relationship with the father apart from the son. Jesus Possesses a better name. He possesses a better claim to his relationship with the Father. And we'll conclude briefly with this. He possesses a better fame. Verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Well, once again, we come into a challenge here, doesn't it imply that the Son was created if God brings the firstborn into the world, He's the first created being? That's what Arius taught, as we just said. No, it's, it's, it's not a reference to His order of birth compared to other things that were created. It's a reference to His rank. You see this as well in Colossians 1.15. This same idea, Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It em- em- emphasizes the fact that he is far above, he, his authority supersedes, right? It's, it's superior, it's supreme to all else. But there was a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist in his humanity. Right? He became flesh and dwelt among us, according to John 1.14. So the quote does not come directly out of the, the Hebrew Masoretic text. If you reference uh, either Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, or, or Psalm seven seven, there's some differences in the way that it's worded here in Hebrews. But it does match the Greek Septuagint translation. So this is one of the reasons why we know that the author is reading and quoting from... The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we mentioned earlier, that supports the Septuagint reading. In Deuteronomy, the focus there, if he's quoting from Deuteronomy, then Moses there is writing about God. The angels were called to worship God. And the psalmist in Psalm 97.7 is praising the Lord. In either case, the object of the angelic worship is God, and here, what the author of Hebrews is doing, without qualification or hesitation, is applying this verse to the Son. In other words, the author expected the audience to understand that whatever worship was offered to the Father was equally appropriate toward the Son. If the Son was worthy to receive worship from angels, then he is clearly superior to them. Right? And when we know that Jesus is superior to everything, we can be content when he is all that we have. And, and once you've been united to the Son by faith, why would we look beyond him? Or why would we turn elsewhere for some deeper, more mystical experience of God? No horoscope or Enneagram assessment will give you more than you already have in the sun. Such a development should be unthinkable in light of redemptive history to elevate anything beyond him. Since Jesus is superior to everything, we know that nothing less than him will ultimately satisfy. And if we have him, then we have infinitely more than anything else else. That is offered to us. And so we can learn to be content with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for this instruction that Jesus is superior the angels, and, and maybe we don't think of angels as being elevated to the degree that the, this original audience would have, but we have the same tendencies to take inferior glories, to take lesser glories, and to magnify them to be ultimate, to pursue our own experience or our own intellect for our own purposes rather than to magnify your name. Lord, we confess that oftentimes our, our motives are impure. And even the way we think about uh, your word and interpret it, Lord, is oftentimes centered upon us. Lord, help us to recognize that That what we need more than anything is to be satisfied in Christ. To know and understand who he is. As your son and as our savior. So that we would depend upon him and nothing else. Lord, we come to you in his name. We recognize that it is you by your spirit who keeps us in your name enables us to persevere and endure and Lord we acknowledge that that Jesus and his relationship was unique with the father it is superior to any other relationship with you that we are adopted into this family and and we can offer him the worship that belongs to you because you reveal yourself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, help us not to manipulate the Trinity or to misunderstand the very basic teaching that there is one God in three persons. Lord, as we confess our faith and we recite these truths, Lord, may it confirm and strengthen our faith. And once again bring us to this table to commune with that very son spiritually to be nourished and edified to be equipped to do what he has called us to for his glory and honor we ask it in christ's name amen well i invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response hymn 265 in christ alone